Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre, with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, book designer and first-time biographer Bruce Killett. His book, W.A. Dwiggins, A Life in Design, was published by Letterform Archive in 2017. Bruce Kennett took great care documenting the creative life of the extraordinary writer and graphic designer, William Addison Dwiggins. Yeah, the elevator pitch for Dwiggins needs to be in a skyscraper because <laughs> he did so many things. Uh, he was the first writer to use the term graphic design. He established the look and feel of Alfred Knopf's book publishing empire. Uh, he was a really talented calligrapher, illustrator. He designed a lot of typefaces for the Linotype Company. He was a, a woodcut artist. He was a fiction writer, an essayist. And in the puppet world, he's famous for his marionette engineering. He built two private marionette theaters at his house outside of Boston. And to this day, his techniques are studied in puppetry schools. He was a theatrical set designer, a lighting designer, and a playwright. So all of these things put together in in one life. So was he a Renaissance man? Absolutely. He was born in 1880 and died in 1956. He had terrible diabetes, and his father had died at age 38 of adult-onset diabetes, and Dwiggins was diagnosed in 1922 and would have died, certainly, but the Canadians discovered insulin that same year. So we got another 30 years of productivity out of him. And although he was moored to his house by this diabetes, he woke up every morning excited to do something, not a, a bitter word, not a trace anywhere of his having been dealt a bad hand of cards. And he joked that he was campaigning for the 48-hour day because he couldn't get enough done in 24 hours. <laughs> and what was the protocol in terms of treatment then with diabetes? This is the most elusive part of his story. His assistant, Dorothy Abbey, talks about these charts that only a graphic designer could make that keep a record during the day of what he's had to eat in the way of sugar-producing substances and so on. I've never been able to find them, but it meant that he had to have an extremely rigorous and methodical diet to keep his diabetes under control, and eventually he moved back home because it was much easier for him to just stay put and have his studio right there rather than when he lived in uh, Hingham and, and commuted to downtown Boston, he'd have to eat meals out or bring all of his food with him, that sort of thing. Mm, wow. How did you come to focus on and spend how many years? Uh, working, Fifteen years. Fifteen years working on his life. When I was 22, I moved to Boston. I was vaguely interested in graphic arts. My dad was an architect, and I thought I was going to be an architect. But I was much more interested, really, in two-dimensional design. And I, my roommate and I spent a lot of time at the Boston Public Library in their graphic arts section. And we met Dwiggins' assistant, who was in 1972 installing three rooms of all of his marionettes and his books and his handmade tools and so on. And that began many years of my going down to Dorothy's in Hingham, this town where Dwiggins had lived, to visit her. 
So I was electrified at age 22 before I knew I was going to become a book designer by his joie de vivre, his whimsy and his quirkiness. And I went home to tell my parents about it in northern New Hampshire, and they said, oh, oh yeah, you lived around the corner from him when you were a baby. (laughs) So it turned out I was born in Boston, and the first five months I lived a few streets away from Dwiggins' house as a baby in Hingham, Massachusetts. And then 22 years later, life comes full circle, and I got interested in him. And in 1980, I was teaching, and one of my students was in an organization called Book Builders that all the big Boston publishing houses belong to. And she said, we have this award named for Dwiggins, but we don't really understand who he was. Will you come talk to us about it at our annual meeting? So at age 30, with my knees knocking together, I went in and gave a slideshow to talk about doing it. So I've been lecturing about him since 1980. And in 2003, I was meeting with my great friend, Rocky Steinauer, who was sort of the dean of fine printing in the United States. And I was complaining, no book about Dwiggins. That's that's not fair. That's not okay. Who's going to write one? And he said, well, you should do it. I said, no, 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 no. And he said, no, really, you're the one who loves him. You should do it. So that's when I started. So now, what was, as a biographer, the most difficult aspect of the research part of it? Was it finding uh, material on him? Was it getting access to family members or friends? What, What was difficult? The easy part is that all of his papers are at the Boston Public Library. Over a dozen years, I made about 80 trips from northern New Hampshire to come to Boston for anywhere from one to five days to do research. Here's the tough part, and I owe this to Bio, actually. I discovered Bio late in the process. I'd already been doing this for seven or eight years, doing the research, and I started attending the the local New England chapter uh, meetings in Cambridge. I had just been writing down Dwiggins' collection, BPL, and somebody said, oh, no, this is the roadmap for all future scholarship. You need to say Box 31 folder 12. Mm -hmm. And I had to go back, like Hansel and Gretel in the woods, (laughs) I had to go back and find all of these things that I had unearthed. It's a vast collection. Dwiggins, he never threw anything away. So there's a huge store of his things. I had to go back and refind all those things because I owed it to anybody else who might consult the endnotes to let him know where it is. So that was, I think, the toughest thing, that I had to redo a lot of work that it would have taken only an instant to write that down. But as a first-time biographer, I didn't realize that I had to record at that level of granularity. Mm-hmm. When you talk about um, VAST, how many boxes are, are we talking about in terms of the archives? Oh, there are, in one collection alone, there are well over 100 and each box is maybe six inches deep, stuffed completely full of papers. Mm-hmm. And then there are all of these paintings that he made that are in flat files. So there's an enormous amount of stuff. And Dorothy, like a dragon sitting on treasure, after Dwiggins died in 1956, she continued to live in the Dwiggins' house. She had t- cared for them because he, he not only had diabetes, he got cataracts and also, we think, Parkinson's. Uh, Mabel had asthma and uh, dementia. Oh, who's so, Mabel? Uh, Dwiggins' wife. So Dorothy, who came on the scene in 1946 when Dwiggins was then 66, took one look at them and said, 
okay, I think I'm just going to move in with them and make life easier. So she drove. Neither of them drove. And she was not a relative. No. She was a younger person who had been an independent book designer, but who loved Dwiggins' work. She came from a comfortable background, didn't have to earn a living on her own, and she decided to devote herself to helping the Dwigginses. Mm. So for 10 years, she helped Bill and Mabel, and then after Bill died, she lived another 10 years taking care of Mabel until Mabel had to go into a nursing home. And at that point, she moved into Dwiggins' studio, and she protected all of this stuff, and with an archivist's heart, kept it all organized. And then in 1972, she brought it to the Boston Public Library and installed all of it there. And what kind of access did you have to people who knew him or other relatives? I was able to conduct in the early 2000s a phone interview with a guy in Washington State who had been Dwiggins' hands. Dwiggins, he was a very, very talented calligrapher, and he hand-lettered the spines of all the books that he did for Knopf and the other clients. But by World War II, Dwiggins was shaking enough that he couldn't really do it. And so this guy, Charles Skaggs, was a freelancer in New York, and Knopf had hired him to, in a way, be Dwiggins' hands. So Dwiggins would lay out something, and then Charles would execute it. And then it would come back to Dwiggins for review, and he would sometimes request certain changes and so on, and then off the artwork would go. So I was able to talk with him and recorded this long conversation about their relationship, which was, they met only a couple of times, otherwise it was all done by mail and and telephone. So by the time I started doing this, there weren't people who had been his co-workers, So I had to rely on written material, correspondence, memoirs written by these other people, that sort of thing. And there's a a wonderful set of books that a place in New York called The Typophiles published in 1960 that is a gathering of essays by his intimate friends and colleagues. And so I got a lot of good material from that. Is Dorothy still alive? No, she died in the 90s. Oh, wow. So I'm very thankful that she and I logged as much time together. Now you say, um, because I've heard you you say this before, and I'm sure it's in the book, that uh, Dwiggins was the first to coin the term graphic design. Another Dwiggins scholar has gone out of his way to prove that Dwiggins wasn't the first person to use it. (laughs) But what I would say is Dwiggins was the first writer to use it. It does appear a year earlier in a college catalog of courses somewhere else. But certainly Dwiggins in 1922 was the first writer to use the term graphic design. It had been called commercial art before then. And he was a really able writer. In general, when anybody talks about Dwiggins, they reproduce one of his visual pieces because he was so good at that. And his writing has not been recognized for its muscularity and vividness. And so my book takes 20 pages of things that he wrote they're set in typefaces that he designed and then printed by letterpress, which is the process for which those types were designed. So it's his own words set in his own typefaces. And I love having that part of his spirit in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, how would you define graphic design? The ordering of visual elements to make the reader's path through the content 
as smooth and enjoyable as possible. So the graphic designer, in a way, is like the conductor of the symphony, pulling all the pieces together to deliver a message that is orderly and, and makes sense. And he was a master. At that. He was a master, and he wrote the Bible of that in 1928 called Layout and Advertising that stayed in print. Harper's did a second edition in 1948, and it was uh, relied on by the people who used to be called commercial artists and then became known as graphic designers. All of those principles laid out in 1928 are still valid today. It's a wonderful book. Mm. So in your book, uh, you have uh, examples of his writing and plenty of, of gorgeous reproductions of his work. So as anybody who has anything to do with publishing knows that when you're talking about reproducing uh, graphics, that you're talking about a pretty expensive undertaking. So how did publishers respond to your book proposal? I was um, courted by a really significant publisher who wanted to produce the book in Asia and who needed for it to be at a lower price point because that's the sort of comfort zone of their list. And I had been working on this for so long, I wanted the book to be a true honoring of Dwiggins and to show the breadth and variety of, of his work. And even my book, which is 496 pages, is just the tip of the iceberg of what he produced. So an old friend who was starting up a graphic arts library in San Francisco said, well, why don't we publish it and we'll do it as a crowdfunded project rather than a traditional publisher sells it to the wholesaler who sells it to the bookstore who then marks it up and sells it to the end reader. And I said, okay. And so by doing that, Old friends of mine, with whom I've been working for 40 years, printers up in Maine, printed this. I was present for every form of the printing as it went through the press. The fidelity to color and shape of these things is as close to holding the original in your hand as we could get it. And in many cases, they're reproduced at actual size. And the two kinds of paper that the book was printed on are the direct descendants of paper that Dwiggins did advertising for in the teens and 20s. Hmm. So that for me, there's this wonderful DNA of Dwiggins' own history, even in the raw materials of the book, which was produced in the place he loved more than anywhere, which was New England. That's amazing, too, because you're talking about crowdfunding, which is a whole nother <laughs> pathway. Um, did you try to maybe try another publisher and just decided crowdfunding was going to be it? I, a friend of mine who is an agent helped me for the first few years, and we approached what I would call traditional New York publishers. And because it was a highly visual book, which means ka-ching, 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 <laughs> it's going to be very expensive to produce, right. nobody was interested. And so then this publisher also a traditional publisher, approached me uh, directly. And I thought about doing that. And then when I got this crowdfunding offer from the new publisher out in San Francisco, I talked about it with Sally, my agent. She thought, this is great. You Goodbye. You should go do this. And so I worked out an arrangement with them. What scared me was that I saw this as a general interest title. What drove me for the whole 15 years was his spirit, his love of life, his delicious sense of humor, 
he wanted to use satire and humor to make change. And he was very serious about making change in, in various ways in the world. He was a strong anti-war advocate. He was very interested in the quality of printing and books and various other things. So I saw this as a book that an interested general reader would love. And so what happened is we ran the crowdfunding campaign. People from 43 countries ordered the book, way over a thousand people ordered the book in advance. So they paid for it in advance and then waited for the book to be produced. Mm. So that shows the love for Dwiggins that's all over the planet. That was wonderful. The hard part for me is that because it was crowdfunded, only the people who knew about it through the social media uh, associated with the crowdfunding know that the book exists. And I wanted somebody to go into the the indie bookstore in Keokuk, Iowa, and be able to buy the book and read it. We made a book of extraordinary beauty and quality without cutting corners anywhere, and we were able to sell that for an amazingly reasonable price, given what it cost to produce the book. But it meant that we had a more narrow focus on on who knows about it. So I'm now trying to go around and give as many talks as I can and build an awareness of the fact that the book exists. Mm. Is crowdfunding, is that considered self-publishing? Well, some people would see it as vanity publishing, but everything that we did in the production of this book is at least the equal of what a traditional publisher would do. And in fact, really, it's more like an exhibition catalog that somebody like the Met would publish or the Morgan Library. And so the level of quality, the fact that it was copy edited and proofread and that the all the color separations were checked and rechecked against the originals and so on. So in that sense, it doesn't really feel like vanity publishing. But publishing's in transition, and this gives people whose books may not fit into traditional publishing a chance to reach their audience. And here's Bruce Kennett reading from his book, W.A. Dwiggins, A Life in Design. A very quick setup. Dwiggins was a creative force in many arenas. Type design, book design, calligraphy, illustration, advertising design, ornament, sculpture. He made furniture and flew kites. He wrote fiction, plays, essays, and satire, and was the first writer to use the term graphic design. Andy's famous in the puppet world for his marionette theaters, set designs, and puppet engineering. In this excerpt, he's moving into a new studio space in Boston in his early 40s. The studio mates basked in the tranquility of their new location. The Fenway Studios building stood tall along the south side of Ipswich Street, facing a wide network of railroad tracks that led to nearby Back Bay Station. With no buildings to the north, nothing but open sky, the immense wall of windows flooded every studio with even lighting throughout the day. The Museum of Fine Arts and the parkland of the Back Bay Fens were just moments away. Some of Boston's most accomplished and interesting artists kept studios here, where they could work in solitude, eat meals, and spend the night if necessary. Inside these massive walls, the new occupants found a deep sense of peace and a stimulating and colorful assortment of neighbors. Corner Studio 201 also provided the welcoming charm of a fireplace. As they'd done at their previous studio, Dwiggins and Goss divided the space into smaller areas with their wicker furniture and dull black bookcases. 
first-time visitors generally entered with cries of astonishment. The solid black walls transformed the studio into a stage set with framed illustrations, murals, and bits of work in progress radiating flashes of color from the void. Dwiggins worked at a high drawing table, sometimes standing, sometimes sitting on a stool. On the side table at his elbow, he kept a phalanx of tools, reed pens, metal nibs, artist brushes, oddly shaped knives, jigs, clamps, and rulers. He invented many of these and might fabricate a tool to perform only a single specific task. Recently, he had grown ever more involved with stencil making. Small sheets of celluloid now littered the perimeter of his drawing board and the side table, pocked with triangular cutouts or arrays of tiny holes, smears of dried ink and paint spread across their surfaces. To apply the color through his stencils, Dwiggins bought shaving brushes, sawed off their bristles to obtain exactly the right length and stiffness, and then mixed inks and paints to an ideal viscosity so the color would pass through the stencils without bleeding. The seven years that Dwiggins spent at 201 marked a significant change in the nature of his work. In his earlier studios, he'd dashed off illustrations and lettering for advertising agencies and a few publishers and printings, printers, but had never found steady work in book design. Now he was able to realize the dream he'd held in mind for two decades, and by the end of his time here, he'd also achieved his other goal, to become a designer of printing types. Thank you. That was author Bruce Kennett, reading from his book, W.A. Dwiggins, A Life in Design, published by Letterform Archive in 2017. Bruce Kennett's reading and interview were recorded during the Biographers International Organization's annual conference held in May 2018 at the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York's Graduate Center in Midtown Manhattan. You can read more about bio on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C., Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks for listening and have a great day. Bye.